This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome to an evening with Tim Wise. I would like to thank Melissa Bartlemy, Aaron Jones, and Samantha Sanchez for organizing tonight's program and wonderful opening remarks, too, from the three of them. So let's give them a round of applause. Tonight's event is part of the Resilient Love in a Time of Hate series sponsored by the Division of Student Affairs and the Multicultural Center. I'm very appreciative of Professor George Lipsitz and Multicultural Center Director Zavini Khan-Marcus for envisioning this series of programs with me. The Resilient Love in a Time of Hate series is a year's worth of programming intended to create dialogue on campus about community, democracy, identity, and inclusion. This week, Immigrant Awareness Week activities are a part of the series in addition to tonight's program. There's a faculty and staff UndocuAlly workshop tomorrow at 2 in the Flying A studio of the USEN. Faviana Rodriguez's lecture last night is also part of the series and was terrific. Other upcoming events include a residency with Quetzal, the Chicanx rock group from February 22nd to 24th. So keep on the lookout for other events in this series, Resilient Love in a Time of Hate. Tonight, we are so pleased to have author, activist, and public intellectual Tim Wise on campus to talk about his anti-racist work. There's been a lot of discussion recently about white people entering the public dialogue about race as if it's a new concern. Weiss's resume makes clear that he has been doing this work for a long time. Tim Wise is the author of seven books, including his acclaimed memoir, White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son, as well as Dear White America, Letter to a New Minority, and his most recent book, Under the Affluence, Shaming the Poor, Praising the Rich, and Sacrificing the Future of America. There will be a book signing after tonight's um, presentation. Mr. Weiss is also a public speaker who is in demand across the United States and intellectually, internationally and intellectually, um, speaking to schools, corporations, government officials, law enforcement, and medical professionals about dismantling racism. He has been featured in a number of documentaries, including the 2011 documentary, Vocabulary of Change, where he appears in dialogue with Angela Davis discussing connections between race, class, gender, sexuality, and militarism. Weiss was interviewed for a video exhibition on race relations in the newly opened Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Tim Weiss graduated from Tulane University and received anti-racism training from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond in New Orleans. We are lucky to have him here at UCSB in this moment when the operations of white privilege are so clearly exposed in the American political landscape and when the work that white folks need to do with each other is so urgent. Mr. Wise, welcome to UC Santa Barbara. That's some crazy shit right there. That's a lot of people. And y'all are applauding. You have no idea what I'm going to say. That's not true. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm going to say. That's why you came. All right, well, 
we'll see what happens. First of all, I want to thank all the folks who made this possible. We put this together sort of uh, relatively last minute, a couple of weeks, and um, I really appreciate all the effort that went into making that possible. I want to thank the folks who are here from Surge, showing up for racial justice, who are, as they are in 100 and roughly 20 different chapters around this country, working every day to try to engage white folks on these issues of race and trying to figure out how those of us called white in this country can work in solidarity and allyship, real allyship, not just the word, you know, but the deed with people of color. And that's the work we need to do. So for all those white folks who I, you know, I've been white a really long time, I, I know. I know the handshake, I know the code words, right? We don't really have code words, folks of color, just so you know, but uh, you know, we might as well. Um, those of us who are white and often ask, what can we do? What do we do now? How do we help? You know, there's no more excuse for not knowing the answer to that question, or at least not knowing where to look for the answer to that question, because there are folks all around this country in the last three years who have been engaging that question, and I want to thank those folks from Surge who are here to do that. Um, couple of things. First of all, I'm really glad you're here. Like I said, it's a great audience, a big crowd. I know there's an overflow room. They're still working on making sure it's set up and everyone in there can hear the event as well. Um, I hope, and not just hope, I really sort of insist, if you get nothing else out of this talk, and, and you know, I'm going to be here a minute, so you're going to get more, but if you get nothing else out of it, I hope you will learn the importance of not just coming to hear me, and other white folks, particularly white males, particularly white, straight, and cisgendered males, and college-educated, upper-middle-class males speak about these issues. I hope you heard some of the other events, right, that are going to be happening, and you know there are events on this campus and in the community all the time that happen where folks of color engage these issues, where women of all colors engage these issues, where LGBTQ folks engage these issues, where working-class folks try to engage these issues, and I hope, I really sort of insist that the only way we're going to build a movement for real liberation is when a crowd like this will show up, not just for the white, straight, upper middle class, cisgendered male, but for all of those folks of color who do the work every single day in this community, on this campus, and all around this country, and without whose work, I and other white folks who do the work wouldn't have a thing to say. So please make sure that you come to their events and that you, and that you listen to their wisdom. Because even though I've got some stuff to say and I intend to say it, and I intend to say it relatively well, you know, so hang out. It's going to be good, you know. Um, there are a lot of other folks who say a lot of really important things, and they say them every bit as well or better, and sadly, they get ignored. So here we are. A um, little over eight years ago, when Barack Obama was elected president, I remember, like, that very week, right, going out and speaking to folks and Remember getting emails like that week, you know, remember this one, all capital letters, red font, so you know it's going to be bad, right? All, all capital letters and red font. The person is angry, and they're trying to let you know that they're angry, so the guy's like, ha, 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 ha. Okay, first of all, it's like six in the morning. Stop with the, stop with the ha, 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 right? It's too early for that, right? And he says, you're going to have to get a new hustle because, you know, that's what this is when you're in America. It's always a hustle when you fight white supremacy. That's a great way to get rich and famous and powerful. <laughs> Speaking up against white supremacy is a hell of a 
hell of a plot. That's a great conspiracy, right? You're going to have to get a new hustle, he said, because now that a black man has been elected president, how could racism possibly be a problem? Yeah, well, a little over eight years later, I guess we're over that now. (laughs) We have other problems, right? So here we are trying to make sense of things, I suppose, and I want to suggest to you a couple of things before we really get into the substance of the remarks, right? One is it is this isn't just an ideological or philosophical or political debate we're having. There are really, at this particular moment in time, two sort of visions of America and about social change that are at war with one another. And these two particular visions of America and of social change are entirely incompatible with one another. They cannot coexist. One must die in order for the other to live. Make no mistake, there can be no compromise. There can be no playing nice. One must die in order for the other to live. And the two theories of America and social change are basically this. Number one the sort of great man theory of America and social change, right? Which is a very long-standing theory, this idea that we have problems and along comes some great individual, usually a dude, right? Who's going to solve all of our problems, right? You just elect the right person, you hire the right person, you have the right person in charge of stuff, and things get changed. And that's a very long-standing theory, right? It's actually what we learned to be honest with you, it's what we were taught, probably going back to like eighth grade American history, because if you think about how we learned history, it was always a collection of quote-unquote great men, right? It was about great generals who fought wars and won certain battles. It was about great founding fathers who created this wonderful country, blah, blah, blah. It was about great entrepreneurs and industrialists who built the economy, right? That's how we learned it. It wasn't a collective history. It was an individual history. Into that historical framework and theory walks a man like Donald Trump, who was all about that mentality, right? Someone who comes in and says, I alone, his words, not mine, I alone can solve the problems of our country. I alone can fix the economy. I alone can defeat ISIS. I alone can handle this problem and that problem and this problem and that problem. So... When he says that stuff, it's not like he, he came up with that, right? Anyone who thinks Donald Trump has had an original thought <laughs> at any point in his life has paid no attention either to his life or the history of the country that you live in, right? He's simply playing into a mentality that's very common, right? This idea that change is done by great individuals who seize the moment, right? That America has crises and problems and some person comes along and fixes them. Which is inherently a disempowering narrative, isn't it? It's one that says, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is put your faith in the power of a leader. Allow your will to become his will, his will to become your will. It's an inherently anti-democratic, small d, inherently authoritarian, inherently fascist mentality. And there's another theory of America and another theory of social change, and that theory lives in a building that is literally two blocks from the new home of Donald Trump. It resides in the Museum of African American History and Culture, which if you have not had the opportunity to visit it, you should take the time, make the effort, 
and go. Because in that building, two blocks roughly, long blocks, but still, from Donald Trump's new home, where he will spend at least a little time when he's not locked away in Trump Tower or Mar-a-Lago, in that building, one sees the alternative version of America, and most certainly the alternative version of change in a social context, because what does that building tell us? It tells us about a nation that is about pain amid promise and promise amid pain. It tells of a country where all of the change that has come has been the result of the collective efforts of committed people waiting on no man, on no great leader to solve their problems. When you walk through that museum, you begin to see how change really happens. It does not come from the top. It comes from the bottom. It comes from the people. You walk into that museum and you see you begin at the bottom level. They go down 10 stories and start at the bottom with the enslavement of African peoples and work up. It is both symbolic and more than that. It is suggestive of how history unfolds and how change happens. And by the time you get up there several levels above, right, you begin to see how the collective change, everything that has made this country Anything remotely worth defending or supporting has been the result of the collective action of people who would not settle for the great man. Who would not settle for the great leader. Who would not settle for the empty promises and the rhetoric of fools. And so you come into one part, and here's, I don't want to spoil it for you, but tickets are hard to get right now, so it might be a minute before you get in, so I'm going to tell you what I have to tell you. There's a part where you come in, there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson. And it's dark. The lighting's about like it is in this room. It's on purpose. Right? Statue of Jefferson, and behind him on the wall, lit up quite a bit better than his statue, right? is an engraving on the wall of words from the Declaration of Independence, which he wrote, of course, at least most of it. And the first part of that, right, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And those words are lit up, and his statue is in the dark, and behind him is something even darker. There's like this structure, and you can't quite tell what it is when you first come in. It's like these sort of dark, looks like boxes of some sort, almost like the size of shoe boxes, and they're all painted dark, and you don't quite know what they are, and you get a little closer, and you begin to see that they're shoebox-sized bricks, basically, right? They look like bricks. They're intended to be bricks, and they all have names on them. And you get a little closer, and you look at what the names are, and if you don't figure it out, within a few seconds, the docents will be happy to tell you what the Names and the bricks represent, if you haven't figured it out already, right? And all of those bricks, hundreds of them, represent the human beings owned by the man who wrote those words, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So you see, truth and justice doesn't come from the great man. 
because that man whom we consider quite great in our American history owned hundreds of other human beings, violated his own principles. The only reason we're here today is because black folks believed his words more than he believed his words. Know that. And then you move on and you see some other things. There's an auction block from which human beings were sold by great men. Quote, unquote, an auction block on which we're told Andrew Jackson once stood to give a speech. Nat Turner's Bible is there. There's an axe handle that used to belong to Lester Maddox, segregationist governor of Georgia. He used to, before he was governor, run folks out of his restaurant with an axe handle who were black. And you're reminded as you walk through this place, Emmett Till's casket is there. You're reminded of something very important for us right now and never forget it. And what is that lesson? That lesson is that folks of color have been overcoming bigger and badder than Donald John Trump for a long time. And if you think... If you think for even one minute that this thing is done? If you think for even one minute that folks of color are gonna fold when they didn't fold for Bull Connor, when they didn't fold for Jim Clark on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, when they didn't fold when Martin and Malcolm and Megger were murdered, when they didn't fold when Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten in the jail in Ruleville, I promise you, you have not studied this country's history and you do not know black and brown people. So this thing right here, This thing right here is just beginning. This is not the end of anything, it's the start. So welcome to the resistance and here we go. So what does this mean in real terms? See, here's the thing, this is what concerns me. Having said everything that I just said, I also importantly want to point out that this is not about Donald Trump. Just a recent manifestation of some really old. You know, if you saw the SNL skit like the week after the election, right? Chappelle and Chris Rock on the show, right? These white folks up in their crib in Brooklyn were all freaking out. They're like, how could this happen? My God, how, did, how are people this racist? And see, the two black folks were like, really? Y'all are shocked by this? Like, this was like, we just call this Monday. You know, this is... People of color weren't really shocked. That's not to say that people of color aren't upset now. There's a difference between being surprised that it happened and shocked. Maybe folks didn't think it was going to happen, but that doesn't mean that you were like, oh, my God, how is this possible? Right? You know, like, things happen, right? And so we got to understand that even though some of this stuff is new in the sense of maybe the level of extremity or the level of danger that we're looking at right now because of some historic circumstances, some of this stuff is really old. Like the struggle right now isn't really that different than the struggle six months ago. It's not really that different than the struggle a year ago or three years ago or five years ago. The struggle for police accountability, it's not any different. It may be harder, right, with an administration that is not going to investigate police unaccountability the same way, that's not going to 
attempt to hold police accountable for the things that they do nearly as much even as the last one. The last one didn't do enough either. But these folks probably not going to do it. That's a problem, but the struggle is the same. You understand? Even if the ability to find allies in high places is less, that doesn't change the struggle itself. We still make the same arguments. We still mobilize in the same way. And so if unarmed black folks are three times more likely than unarmed white folks to be shot, and that is a fact nationwide, then the struggle is the struggle, whether Donald Trump is president or not. Right? If racial profiling is such that people of color are three to four times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs, even though white folks are twice as likely to have drugs on us on the occasion when we're searched, and that's a fact, the struggle is the same, whether Donald Trump is the president or not. So some of this isn't really new, and I want us to understand that because I don't want us to get knocked off stride by the idea that the struggles are now the result of this administration. This stuff has been going on for a very long time. Most importantly, and here's the really key thing, right? The very election of this man, based on the rhetoric and the narrative that he spun, is America 101. Because if I had to explain to you in one phrase the history of this country with regard to race and with regard to class, this would be the phrase. The whole history of America is the history of rich white men telling not rich white people that their problems are caused by brown and black people. That is the whole history of America. All the rest, as they say, is commentary. Right? It's all footnote from there. The whole history of America is rich white men, or at least men who say they're rich. Now, we don't really know, do we? (laughs) We don't really know. He inherited, not even inherited, took over a $237 million real estate empire from his daddy, but likes you to believe he is a self-made man. All right. Give me $237 million worth of assets, and I will probably become rich, too. Doesn't take a lot of skill, would take a hell of a lot of skill to lose all that dough. So I'm not sure we need to applaud the man for that, but whatever. He says he's rich, and for the sake of my argument, I'm just going to give it to him because it helps my history lesson. So we'll stick with it. Rich white men telling not rich white people that their problems are brown people. That goes back 400 years. Right? Go back to the 1600s. What do we see in the colonies of what would become the United States? We see... Rich white people who were very, not even called, first of all, they're not called white yet. Because we hadn't created that yet. Right? We hadn't thought of that. See, that was some other stuff. We came up with that. We hadn't thought of that yet. We were just, there were some rich European people who owned all the land. And among them were what? African enslaved folks and European peasants, many of them indentured servants, right? Just one level above enslavement themselves. And they outnumbered the rich dramatically. In some places, five to one, ten to one. Other places, two to one, but always outnumbered the rich. The rich were always a very small percentage. Just like right now, the top one-tenth of one percent of Americans owns the same amount of stuff as the bottom 90%. Wealth inequality is not really new. It's been the legacy of America. It might be more extreme right now than it's been in the contemporary period. But at the outset of the colonies, that was normative. So you had this handful of rich folks from Europe facing poor Europeans and African enslaved folks and indigenous peoples whose land they were seeking to conquer, and they began to realize something. They were like, holy hell, like, this is not going to work forever. 
Like at some point, <laughs> these folks are going to figure out that this is sort of for them. Like they're going to want to take our stuff, right? Because they're going to realize we're hurting all of them, not just enslaved African folk and indigenous folk, but even these poor European folks. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We got to come up with something, man. We got to have some kind of a, a game that we can run on them. What's the game? Oh, we got a game. We came up with a game. The game was called the white race. Right, this game was called, let's create this new fictional thing. We're going to call all these European people white people. Now, you know that's like not real, right? You think that Europeans thought of themselves as one big happy family? This is what's so funny about these white nationalists that are coming out of the woodwork in the wake of the Trump campaign. They act like whiteness has some historical pedigree. The hell, you think Europeans loved each other? Man, we spent most of our time trying to kill each other. The English hated the Irish. The Irish hated the English. Northern Italians didn't even think that Southern Italians were Italians. Germans hated everybody. And the world felt the same way about them. Europeans spent most of our time trying to kill each other or in the colonies of what became the United States, trying to figure out who the witch was. That's the history of Europeans. You're a witch. Well, you're a warlock. Well, we're going we're gonna to burn you at the stake for not worshiping our Lord the right way. That's sort of what we did, right? So the idea that we were one big team called white people is absurd. Whiteness became a concept created for one reason only, and that was to sucker poor, working class, immiserated peasant Europeans into believing that they actually were on the same team as rich people. So if you tell them, oh, well, you know, you're white now. Oh, yeah, I know. Wow. We've been kicking your ass forever, but uh, now we're going to put you on the slave patrol. Oh, yeah. We're going to give you a horse and a badge and a gun and let you keep those black people in line for us, right? And these working class white folks on the slave patrol, the ancient precursor, if you will, to modern policing, right? Working class folks, see, because the police ain't rich and neither were the folks on the slave patrol. It was who rich people hired to protect their from everybody else. So you get these poor white folks, put them on a horse to control enslaved people to do what? To ask for their papers when you see them out. Let me see your papers. Let me see your identification. Who do you belong to? Ultimate stop and frisk, 16 and 1700 style. Racial profiling, 16 and 1700 style, right? Prove that you belong in this community. Show me that you're legitimately in this community. Prop 187, 1600 and 1700 style. Anti-immigration, 1600 and 1700 style. And it was poor and working class white folks that got pulled into that because what it made them feel like they're part of the team. Oh, I'm on the team now. I'm white now. For real, because these other white folks, they don't love you. They would starve you. They did back in the old country, but now they gave you a taste of power. They gave you what W.E.B. Du Bois called what? The psychological wage of whiteness. Right? And that won't pay your bills. But it'll make you feel better. It puffs you up, right? It's like, I may not have much, but at least I'm not black. I may not have much, but at least I'm not indigenous. I may not have much, but at least I'm not Mexican when we jack half of their country in a war of aggression that we started. I know that's not, 
I know, I know, I know that's not what they taught you in eighth grade, but that's how that actually went down. You may not have much, but at least you're not Chinese brought to work on the railroads and build them from dust to dawn and dawn to dusk to build the transcontinental economy of this country. So you may not have much, but at least you're better than them, see? And so you create that mentality. You divide and conquer working class coalitions. You give European people just a little bit of taste of power and say, those are your enemy. And then that works for generations. And then we come up to the Civil War era, right? And it's still working, right? My folks from the South, I'm from the South, lived in the South all my life. And the only difference between those of us from the South and the rest of y'all is we know that our stinks, see? For real, like, those of us in the South who are white, we know we have an issue. White folks in California, not always clear on that, so y'all need to get clear. So the Confederacy decides what? These elite, rich, white landowners in the South decide they got to break away from the Union. And they made clear why they did it now. 150 years later, we lie about it. My people lie about it. We act like it wasn't about slavery. Oh my goodness, no. Wasn't about, wasn't about that, it was about states' rights. Well, what right do you think they were fighting for, Buttercup? Do you think they were fighting for the right to determine the proper recipe for a mint julep? The proper way to s smoke a pork butt? No, they were fighting for one right only, the right to own other human beings and to extend ownership into those newly conquered territories to the West as a result of that illegal war with Mexico, et cetera. So had nothing to do with states' rights in the abstract. The Confederate leaders said so at the time. They said, Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederacy, the cornerstone of this new government is the idea, the great truth, that the Negro is not the equal of the white man. That's what he said. He didn't talk about trade policy. He didn't talk about tariffs. He didn't try to lard it up with a bunch of bull. He just said straight up it was white supremacy because they weren't ashamed at the time. Now we've reinvented history, act like that's not it. But at the time, they were clear. Now here's the trick, though. Here's the trick. This is where it gets crazy because when you got a bunch of rich folks that are saying, we need to go to war to protect our property interest in human beings, but now we're not going to fight. Because <laughs> rich people don't go to war. Rich people not going to fight, whether it's in 1861 or in 1969. Rich folks don't go to war. Rich folks get doctors to write bullshit notes saying they have heel spurs so they don't have to go to war. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, Google that shit when we're done. Rich people don't ever fight to protect their stuff. Rich people don't believe in fighting. They believe in getting poor people to fight for them. Every time, every year, every generation, it's poor folks that get sent off to fight and die for rich folks' stuff. And so the rich in the South sent poor people, but how do you do that? How do you convince poor white people to go fight to protect your property interests and slaves? That's a tough trick, right? Because why would you do that, right? Like, why would you go fight for a rich person's property? Like, I, I'm not rich, but, I, you know, I got a nice house. And for those of you who were students, just because, like, you're students, I probably got more than you. So even though I'm not rich, 
right? I'm just saying like probably, you know, because I've been a little older, I've been around a minute. So if I were to call y'all up on the phone next week because there was like an enemy army invading my block or something, and I was like, hey, y'all, look, there's an army. They're coming, yeah, they got tanks and they're about to take my stuff, but I don't feel like fighting because I just want to sit out on the back porch and have a drink. Why don't y'all come and protect my stuff for me? You'd be like, yeah, I like the speech and all, Tim, but no. Like that would be it. Like you wouldn't do it. But these poor Southerners and working class Southerners without a pot to piss in, in the South, they went and fought and hundreds of thousands of them died to protect the property of the rich. Why? Because the rich said, hey, if these folks get free, they're going to take your job. No fool, they already have your job. You get that, right? Because if you're white and you got to charge a dollar a day to work on that farm, but the owner can get the black guy or the black woman to do it for free because they own them. Guess who gets the gig? The free labor, right? Because people like free, right? Given a choice between free don't cost me anything and a dollar a day, guess what? The white guy didn't get the job. So in effect, white poor folks would have been better off to help overthrow the system of enslavement and white supremacy and work for a better economic deal. But rich... Rich white people held out that psychological wage of whiteness that said you may not have much, but at least you're above them. And then folks settle for that. Fast forward to the labor union movement. Same thing was happening. You had rich corporate owners that actually collaborated with some union leaders in many cases to keep unions segregated. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why would a labor leader fall for that? Right? Because you got to think about it, but they did because they would say, oh, well, we can't have... We can't have black people and Mexicans and Chinese labor in our unions. It'll reduce the professionalism of the working class. No fool. It'll double the size of your union, right? Which is sort of a good thing. Like when you go out on strike, it'd be good if you had more people, not fewer. Just like a math problem, you know. And also because if you don't bring people of color into your union, what's the boss going to do? The very boss that encouraged you to fight amongst yourselves, that boss is going to hire the very same black and brown folks that you didn't want in your union to replace your happy white ass. And then you're going to get mad at who? The boss? No. You're going to get mad at the black and brown laborer who, quote unquote, took your job. See, some shit doesn't change. Rich white folks telling not rich white people that their jobs got taken by people of color. Fast forward to the present. We got somebody swearing that if we can just build that wall, just build that wall, just, but just that one wall on the southern border because we don't trip about this one. We, we just trip about this one, not that one. We don't, we're not worried. I guess we're not worried about crafty Canadians <laughs> trying to figure out how to sneak into this country to take advantage of our superior health care. We're just worried about these folks, but it's not about race. Remember, it's not about race. It's just about legal and illegal, even though 40% of the people in this country who were quote unquote undocumented didn't even cross the border. They're not undocumented at the time they cross any border. They came on legal visas, be they work visas or educational visas, overstayed those visas. A disproportionate number of those are not, in fact, from south of that border. They are overwhelmingly disproportionately from places like Canada, like Europe, not from Mexico, Central and South America, but we scapegoat some and not the others because again, it's about rich white folks or presumptively rich white folks telling not rich white people that their problems are brown. 
It has nothing to do with facts. And by the way, the idea that if you build a wall, jobs are coming back for real. Do y'all, does anybody understand economics at all? <laughs> do you actually think that like the nation's capitalists are sitting around just waiting? They're like, holy shit, I hope they don't figure out that they could just build a wall. <laughs> do you actually think the capitalists are like, We've got them. We've been screwing them for years. We haven't been paying them right. We've been, you know, like not giving them benefits. But if they build that wall, we're going to have to give them all a raise. Really? Do you think that's how it works? You build a wall and then all of a sudden the jobs come back. No, the wall doesn't stop capital from moving. Neither does a tweet, by the way. (laughs) An angry tweet doesn't actually cause a company to change its plans. If you think that an angry tweet makes a multinational corporation decide, oh, holy hell, well, you know, he's mad at me on Twitter, so I guess we'll just keep the jobs here. You know nothing about economics at all, right? A tweet's not gonna change, neither is a wall gonna change capital mobilization. Capital's always gonna be free to cross borders. Goods are always gonna be free to cross borders in search of the highest price, capital in search of the highest return. The only thing a wall does is chain labor to its country of origin. And if you have a policy that chains labor to its country of origin, but allows capital to move wherever the hell it wants, so I can still move my company south of the border, I can still move to Sri Lanka to take advantage of less labor protection, environmental protection, et cetera. All you've done is tilt the game against labor permanently. And not just labor south of the border, but labor north of the border as well. Labor in this country would be far better off to have more folks here who were fighting for justice, who were fighting for better wages, who were fighting for better benefits, not something like a wall or a deportation policy that would limit the ability of those folks to mobilize for radical change. That is not a pro-worker policy, but It is very much in keeping with the mentality that says to those non-rich white folks, your problems are those people. And as long as we can keep folks thinking that, we're not dealing with the real problems. As long as we can keep people focused on that. See, that's the divide and conquer mentality that has existed for generations. There is nothing new about it. And we've been falling for it for hundreds of years to our own detriment. So we have to be prepared to actually deal with that. What does that mean? What does it mean to not know that history? See, it's not just a history lesson, right? It also helps to explain what's going on right now. History, sometimes we don't get why it's relevant. You know, we sit in classes learning history and we think like, why do I need to know this stuff? And I understand because a lot of times it's taught in a very sterile kind of way and sort of boring way. And it's like, why do I need to know this, right? Why is this important? Why can't we just ignore this. Well, a lot of reasons why you can't, just as one little point, because you know, white folks, we love to do this, right? White, white folks, particularly around race, we like to say things like, why can't black people just get over it? Like, <laughs> slavery was a long time ago, right? Why can't they just move on? Well, uh, this is sort of precious coming from people who set off fireworks every July 4th, because that's some old too, right? Like Independence Day, that didn't happen last week, right? We didn't break away from the British last Thursday. That's some old shit. But we're still celebrating that. So when it's stuff that makes us feel good, we love it. When it's stuff that makes us feel better than others, superior, like we're the greatest people in the greatest country ever struck off in the forehead of God Almighty, oh, we'll remember that forever. We just don't like the stuff that brings us up a little short, makes us look a little less than superior, maybe not quite as good as we'd like to believe. If you don't understand why the past affects the present, particularly around issues like enslavement, 
putting aside the inheritance of wealth and the lack thereof, part of which is certainly an explanation for why currently the median white wealth is 15 times the median African-American wealth and 11 to 12 times the median Latino wealth. Certainly that has something to do with history, who had access to resources and who didn't. But putting aside that, let's just understand something. The only reason Donald Trump is president right now is because of a little thing called the Electoral College, which was put in place by folks. See, we got this revisionist history that we've been spending for the last couple of months about the Electoral College. Oh, you know, it was put in there to prevent tyranny. For real, you think? Do you really think that? Because I don't think that. Right? That might have been one of the things that folks were concerned about, but it was also put in because folks like the folks in Virginia, in the bigger slaveholding states, right, didn't want direct democracy or anything even remotely like it because it would have hurt them because so much of their population was not enfranchised, right? So much of their population in some areas, 40% or over half of the people in some of those slaveholding states were what? Disenfranchised, counted as three-fifths of a human being, not considered people. And if you had anything remotely resembling direct democracy, those states would have been harmed by that. So in fact, the Electoral College was in part a compromise with slaveholding states, states who were dependent upon enslavement as a mechanism of economic development so as to improve their political position vis-a-vis non-slaveholding states. So if you don't understand how slavery, because this is the point, right? Even if you don't think racism was key to Donald Trump's own campaign, which you know suggests to me that you might have been asleep for the last several months, even if you believe that, understand that racism in the 1700s White supremacy embedded in the structure of the country at the founding of the country is most definitely implicated in his election because without the obeisance to the electoral college, without that compromise, we know he would not be president right now. So that is why we have to think about the past. And that is why the past affects the present. See, inertia is not just a property of the physical universe. It is also a property of the socioeconomic and the political universe that we have to address. And it's important for us to address that as a systemic matter. So this is the other problem. We talk about race and racism, right? That I think we got to move through if we're going to be effective. Because ever since the election, it's been very, you know, it's easy, I suppose, for people to, and they ask me this a lot, and you've probably, you know, sort of come up upon these kind of conversations where people are, you know, do you think Donald Trump's a racist? Donald Trump a racist? Are all of his supporters racist? All of these are the wrong questions, right? It isn't really about whether he's a racist or whether his supporters are racist or not. I, I would never, first of all, assume that all of anybody's supporters are anything, right? I mean, that would just be ignorant. I would never say like, oh, the only reason you would ever vote for Donald Trump is because you're a bigot. Look, not only are not all of Donald Trump's supporters racist, not all of Hillary Clinton's aren't racist. Let's be clear about that. And in fact, in 2008, look, in 2008, I remember there were polls that came out like a month before the election, right, where something like 28% of white Democrats who said, and I assume they were telling the truth, that they were going to vote for Barack Obama in a month or six weeks or whatever it was. 28% of white Democrats six weeks out from the election said, yeah, I'm going to vote for that guy. But they acknowledged to pollsters that they still believed at least one, if not several racist stereotypes of black people to be true. So what does that mean, right? It means like, yeah, I don't like a lot of them, but that one's okay. Right. It's racism 2.0, but it, you know, it's some updated software, but it's running on the old mainframe. You know, it's 
some of the same old, you just sort of repurposed it, you know, repackaged it. But if I believe that the larger group is dysfunctional, the fact that I carve out an exception for one guy, right, or a handful of people doesn't change that it's still racist. So this isn't about like, oh, this person is awful and this person is great and these people are awful and these people are great. We're all a mix of awful and great. It's the reality, right? We've all been conditioned to be racist and to be sexist and to be classist and all of this stuff, right? We, we've been hit with that stuff ever since we were kids. So none of us are completely free from that. That's that the idea that we can divide ourselves into like the racist and the unracist is just nonsense, right? It's not about that. It's like if we ask if Donald Trump is a racist, it's sort of like asking if a drug dealer is also an addict. I don't know. And I don't care. Right? It's like with Donald Trump, it's like, I don't know if he gets high on his own supply, but I know what he's selling. Right? So at some point, whether or not he's a racist, if he's actually manipulating on the basis of race, if he's using race and racial resentment and racial anxiety in order to get elected, the action is racist. It's not about somebody's core character. And this is something that the right has been manipulating for a very long time. Go back to 1981. There's an audio recording. You can Google this and listen to it yourself. 1981, Lee Atwater, who was for a long time, probably before Karl Rove, the most prominent conservative Republican consultant of the modern era. He had worked for Reagan. He worked for George H.W. Bush. He worked for all the sort of leading conservative Republican candidates through the 80s. And into the 90s, he has since died of cancer. And, um, but before all of that, before he got sick, when he was still very much embedded in Republican conservative politics, 1981, there's an audio tape of him where he actually admits this as a strategy, right? He actually is on the tape saying, listen, you know, back in the 1950s, you could say, and, he, you know, it's the N-word. I'm not going to say it. He says it in the tape like three times. You know, he says it over and over and over again. And then he says, but by the 60s, you know, late 60s, you can't say that word anymore. It gets you in trouble. So you start using other words like states' rights and crime and welfare, right, and taxes, right? And he says, and now you're getting so abstract, it sounds like it's all just about economics. But the real purpose and the point here is that black people get hurt worse than white people. So he's admitting, this isn't, what, this isn't me saying this about right-wing folks. It's not me saying, like, that's what they're doing, right? It's not... Ian Haney Lopez, the author of Dog Whistle Politics, saying this is what they're doing. It's the guy who's actually originated the theory and the practice who's saying, yeah, this is the shit that we do. We just make up words and make up concepts and we sucker people with these ideas to actually hurt black folks. That is what we do. Now, Lee Atwater apologized for some of that before he died. Other folks have not. They keep doing it. Right? And so when Donald Trump gets up and says, now see the difference, right, is that like there's a difference because Atwater was all about the dog whistle and Trump is like about the bullhorn, right? Like the dog whistle is used coded language, but Trump was just like, screw it, Mexicans are rapists, <laughs> right? And we're going to stop Muslims. He didn't really learn all Atwater's lessons. Like Atwater would have been like, dude, just like, could you, could we talk a minute? Like you're not, you're not really doing this right. Like you you need to pull back. But by the end of the campaign, he was learning, right? He sort of, he would, he would talk about uh, when, he, when he would address black folks, right? Of course, he never actually addressed black folks. He, he would go into white suburbs around black cities and talk to white people about black people. 
So he went to the suburbs of Milwaukee and had an all-white audience where he talked about the inner city, which is just interesting phrase, right? Because we haven't used that phrase to describe urban space in like 25 years. So he's still stuck in a mentality of, you know, 25 to 30 years ago. He's like, the inner city is full of carnage and it's falling apart. Everything's terrible. You can't walk out the street without getting shot. Now, at the time, remember, everybody said, oh, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to signal to people that he really cares about the black folks. He's trying to signal to those suburban white folks who might want to vote for him, but they're sort of like, oh, I think he's racist, that he's not because he cares about the black. That wasn't what he was doing, right? What he was doing by reminding white folks about how dangerous and dysfunctional and pathological and horrible black folks in the city were was he was reinforcing their stereotypes and saying to them, I'm the one that can solve this problem. He wasn't signaling concern, for those communities, he was escaped and he was lying. He was lying because, in fact, violent crime in this country, including in black communities, is roughly half of what it was in the early 90s. That is a fact. And you can look it up and you can argue with him and he will ignore it because facts are fungible to him. And yes, there's been an uptick in the last two years in about half of the large metropolitan areas, but the other half, there's been no increase or even a decline in violent crime. Overall, violent crime down. Violent crime even in Chicago, a third below what it was in the early 90s. Violent crime in Los Angeles, 40% below what it was in the early 1990s, or 50% below. Crime in Washington, D.C., at a level it hasn't been seen since 1965. Black male homicide rates lower today than they were in 1950. Now that is what is factual, but we don't want to know about that because we want to paint certain communities as inherently dysfunctional, out of control, filled with carnage, because then we can turn our will over to the great man who can solve all those problems. How? Because he says we're going to do stop and frisk. We're going to turn the police loose, just like we did in New York, because it works so well. Stop and frisk, he says, works so well in New York. Did it really? No, it didn't work. First of all, it's unconstitutional as hell. That's why it was thrown out. But more importantly, it didn't work at all. 88% of the people that were stopped were people of color, right? And only 6% of the people stopped even got a citation for jaywalking, right? 94% of the time, they hadn't done anything. 6% of the time, they got a citation for something, usually a very minor offense, Half of those got thrown out in court because there wasn't enough evidence to sustain the charge. So ultimately, 97% of the people stopped, and we're talking millions of people over a 14, 15-year period, hadn't done anything. But Donald Trump says it worked fabulously. No, that fabulous is too big a word. He said it worked wonderfully. It was awesome. It was amazing. It was great. It was fantastic. It was the best. I mean, there's a thesaurus. It has other words. I'm sure there's one in the Oval Office. He says, it was great. It worked wonderful. It didn't work because hardly anyone was guilty of anything. The theory was it was a good way to get drugs off the street. Well, they only found drugs in 1.2% of all searches. It's not very effective. They actually found drugs more often on the white folks they searched than the black and brown folks they searched. So in other words, the hit rates were better when you stop white people, but they kept stopping black and brown folks disproportionately. So that's some pretty crime control, right? Tells you that the war on drugs ain't about drugs, right? But actually, we know that, right? Like, I know that because the war on drugs was about drugs. I don't know who'd be giving this talk to you, but uh, 
sure as hell wouldn't be me. Because I don't think they let you Skype that in from prison. And I can tell you this now because the statute of limitations has expired and they can't touch me, but. Right. Oh, Jesus, don't, don't applaud that. Like, what is that? Like, oh, white privilege, drug use, awesome. I'm going to go get high tonight. That's no, don't, don't applaud that. That's horrible. I mean, it, it's a laugh line. It's not an applause line. Jesus. Right. But it's true. Right. So 1.2% of the time they found drugs, not a very good anti-drug strategy. The other folks like the chief of police who brought the program in said, oh, it's a great way to get guns off the street. Really? Okay. So in the nine years that were under review in the court case on stop and frisk, they had Four and a half million stops under review over the nine-year period. You know how many guns they found out of four and a half million stops? They found 4,500 guns. Do the math. It's one-tenth of one percent of the people whom they stopped actually had a gun on them. I could do better at finding guns in New York by just walking down the street and randomly tagging people, right? Just like walking up and being like, you, you got a gun? You'd be like, yeah, I got one right here. I'm sure I could find like at least two tenths of 1%, just like flipping a coin, like just, you know, just randomly pointing people out, paintball, some shit, right? That's not a plan. It's not about crime control. It was about black and brown people control, right? That's what this is. So we have an individual who, whether or not he is racist isn't the question. It's about whether or not the policies the practices, the procedures, the systems that he would put in place would further racism. That's the issue. It isn't about personal stuff, right? It's about systemic stuff. And we need to understand it that way also for the sake of the people that did vote for him because we got to have two things that happen from here on. we got to have radical honesty, which means we got to call bullshit when it needs to be called, and we got to name things when they are, in fact, um, fascist and authoritarian and racist and, you know, things of that nature and sexist and all of that. we got to call it what it is. But we also have to have some radical empathy, and this is harder. Radical empathy is harder. It's way hard, right? Radical honesty is just about truth-telling, and, you know, that's, that's sort of easy, particularly if you're already sort of radical. The honesty part comes easy, because you can just be like, I'm just going to bust it off and tell you what's real. But the, the empathy part's harder, and it's particularly hard, I think, sometimes to be empathetic or empathic to people who empower the likes of the current president and do so in a way um, sort of maybe perhaps unthinking about what the consequence. And we've seen that, right? Because there's people that are like, well, wait, you're going to cut off the Affordable Care Act? What? Like, don't do that. Well, he told you he was going to do that. Like, why are you surprised? Like, well, I didn't think he was serious. Well, that's like going to a pizza party and being like, now, nah, I hope y'all aren't planning on having pizza. Because I came for the spaghetti. All right, fool. It's a pizza party, fool. What the hell do you think they're going to have? Don't... He told you pizza. You're going to get pizza. If he tells you, I'm a... of course, people were like, well, I just, I just thought he was going to cut the Obamacare, not the Affordable Care Act. Just the Obama part, just the part where they make me Muslim and <laughs> issue me a passport from Kenya or whatever the hell that part was. That's what I thought. They, 
you know. But it's hard, right? When people do stupid like, it's hard to be empathic. But here's why we have to be, because there are a lot of folks who fell for that. And let's be clear about it. We can joke about it because it's some stupid But at the same time now, we have to be real about the fact that there's some folks who, are, who got suckered, yes, but you can only sucker people who were in pain. If I'm confident, if I'm in a good place, you're not going to fool me. Right? If those peasants back in the 1600s, 1700s hadn't been struggling and suffering, they couldn't have been fooled that way. If those poor white folks in the South hadn't been struggling, they couldn't have been fooled that way. If those folks on the labor unions hadn't been struggling, they couldn't have been fooled that way, right? We, 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 don't, we don't act on our best impulses when we're in a bad place. So if you've seen all these reports the last couple of, well, about six months to a year, right, about the opioid crisis, right, the heroin crisis and, and over-the-counter opioid addiction crisis in white America, Right In rural areas, small towns, yes. And there's actually a correlation between the level of opioid addiction and the vote for Trump. There's actually been interesting maps that have been created that show that the areas with the greatest levels of opioid addiction were some of the biggest support for Donald Trump. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I'm not trying to be snarky and say, like, they're all high, and that's why they did it. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Right? What I mean is this. What is an opioid? What is it? It's something you take to block pain, right? You take heroin and it blocks pain receptors. You take oxy and it blocks pain receptors. That's what opiates do. Donald Trump is a walking, talking, breathing opioid for millions of white folks. So he comes along and says, you elect me, I'll block your pain receptors. You elect me and I'll take your pain away, see? And so folks who may not actually do actual opiates, right, look at him and he becomes this sort of embodiment of pain blockage. Now, here's the thing. If you're in pain and the pain is real and you're misdiagnosing the source of your pain, does that mean that I don't attend to your pain or does it mean that I try to help you figure out the actual source of it? If I have a pain in my side and I decide to consult Dr. Google which is never a good idea, by the way. (laughs) Dr. Google will have you thinking you're going to be dead by the morning. Let's be honest. (laughs) If I have a pain in my side and I consult Dr. Google and I determine that I have cancer, I might be a fool. I'm likely to be wrong, but that doesn't mean that I'm not in pain. My pain needs attending to. I just need a better diagnosis. And so we got to figure out a way to demand accountability from those who empower racism at the same time that we have radical empathy that says your pain is real, but somebody is lying to you. And they've been lying to all of us for a very long time, you see? Because here's the thing that really strikes me. You know, after this election, people said the people that didn't want to attribute it to race, what was their argument? Their argument was, oh, you know, it's not race, it's economic anxiety. People are struggling, they're out of work in these coal towns in Appalachia or in the Rust Belt, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, right? And on one hand, you know, the economic anxiety and the struggle of people in those places is real. I'm not going to deny that, man. We haven't fully come out of the recession yet. Yeah, the jobs are starting to come back, but you know, the, the reality is that on average, they're paying about 20% less in the jobs that were lost during the recession. That's a fact, 
and the inequality of income and wealth has really not changed in the last eight years. In some regards, it's gotten worse. Not the fault of the administration, but they didn't do enough to stop it. So there's some real struggle. There's real pain happening all over the country. So I'm not diminishing that at all. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we want to attribute his rise to economic anxiety? Because it can't just be that. Is it that? Yes, but it can't just be that. How do we know? Well, it's real simple because black folks are still twice as likely to be unemployed as white folks, even when they have a college degree. African-American folk with a college degree, 88%, almost twice as likely as white folks with a degree to be unemployed. So if it was just about economic anxiety, black folks would be flocking to Trump because they're the ones even more likely to be out of work. Oh, you're going to bring the jobs back? Well, then I'm down for that. But that didn't happen. Latino folk with a degree, 50% more likely than white folks with a degree to be out of work. But they didn't flock to Trump. Asian Americans with a degree, 25% more likely than white folks with a degree to be unemployed. But they didn't flock to Trump. Our indigenous brothers and sisters with a degree, two-thirds more likely than white folks with a degree to be unemployed. They did not flock to him. So the idea that it's just economic anxiety in the abstract cannot possibly be true. Because the folks who were the most anxious happened to be the very folks who did not vote for him. So there's something else going on. What is it? Well, it's very simple. See, the difference between those folks of color and those white folks is that some folks already knew the system was a joke. And some people didn't. And here's what I mean by that. A couple of years ago, there was a survey that found that the most optimistic racial group in America in terms of the future and their opportunities were black people and the most pessimistic were white people. Now think about that, like, can you help me with this? White people were the most pessimistic, even though we were half as likely to be unemployed, we were one third as likely to be poor, we had 15 times the net worth of black folks on average, nine years more life expectancy, half the rate of infant mortality, half the rate of low birth weight children. In every single category of well-being, we generally had twice as much of the good stuff and half as much of the bad stuff, but we were still like, yeah, the wheels are coming off of this thing. Everything's going. And black folks who had twice as much of the bad stuff, half as much of the good stuff were like, looking up. Now, how is it possible that the group that is in far better shape is so pessimistic? See, there's only one way to look at that. And that is that that was all happening right around the recession when that poll was taken. And even though people of color were hurt even worse by the recession than white folks, lost a greater percentage of their wealth, more likely to be laid off, lose their jobs, et cetera. But there's an extent to which if you're black or brown in America, you already know, don't you? You already know that this system wasn't set up for you, that you can't assume anything, that working hard and trying hard and playing by the rules doesn't necessarily guarantee you a damn thing. The difference is white America, and particularly white men, have been sold that our whole lives. The idea that if we just play by the rules and work hard, the old saying in coal country and in the Appalachian areas and in the Rust Belt was what? As long as you're strong and have a strong back and can lift things, you'll always have a job. So you have a lot of these white working class folks that my daddy was a coal miner, his daddy was a coal miner, his daddy was a coal miner, his daddy was a coal miner, I'm a coal miner and I want my son to be a coal miner, damn it. And he ought to be able to be that. Putting aside what it means to just assume the entitlement, right, that like, well, surely we're going to always have jobs, right? Even if they're jobs that give us black lung and kill us by the time we're 55 years old. 
The idea that I'm entitled, that my kids are entitled to that level of security. How many black and brown folks in this room ever had the assumption that you could just assume you could walk into a job just because your daddy had one or your mama had one or somebody in your family had one? No person of color has had the luxury of ever believing that, but these folks did. And then all of a sudden the economy shifted under their feet like wet sand. And they don't know what to do with it because the reality of having relative advantage, I don't mean a lot of privilege because these are struggling folks. I don't mean economic privilege. I don't mean class privilege, right? But the privilege of being able to take for granted that your identity as a white person would always mean that if you played by the rules and worked hard, things would work out was a setup. And those folks at the top weren't ready to actually confront the world in which they live. Black and brown folks already knew. Black and brown folks knew by the time they were 11 that it was a hustle. But if you're a member of the dominant group, you don't realize that. So in a way, privilege was a setup, right? It was a way of saying to you that you'll never have to actually worry about this. And James Baldwin said something about this many years ago. He said that that individual who has to snatch his humanity out of the fires of human cruelty that raged to destroy it, learns something about himself in the process that no school and no church can teach. He gains a sense of his own authority, and that is unshakable because he has to look beneath the words, he has to look, read between the lines, can take nothing for granted. That individual who is constantly surviving the worst that life can bring ceases to be afraid of what life can bring. See, people of color are not afraid. And as a result of not being afraid, they face whatever is thrown their way. But if you're a member of the dominant group and you've never had to face that uncertainty because you were told that that uncertainty was not for you, That uncertainty was for those people over there on that side of town. Those people over there across that border. Those people over there who didn't work as hard, you see. And then all of a sudden you discover that this economy wasn't set up for your ass either. It was set up for a handful of people at the top that don't love you, that don't care about you, that just want for themselves. They'll just wall themselves off in gated communities and take care of their own stuff and not really care about any of us out there in the larger world. Once you discover that, what do you do with it? I had a guy write to me an email a couple years ago. He made this point very clear, right? He writes to me. He was out of work for 26 weeks. His name is Jeremy. He's like 40 years old. He says, tell me about my privilege. What privilege do I have? I've been out of work. I had to cash out my kids' college funds, sell everything I own. And it was a perfectly fair question. And I said, look, man, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I'm really sorry about your situation because that's got to be horrible, being out of work for that long. And being afraid about what's going to happen to your family. I wish I could help you. I wish I knew somebody in your industry. You sound like a good guy. Unfortunately, I don't know anyone that I could connect you to. And I said, but I am really sympathetic to your situation, and I I think it's really a damn shame that anybody is facing 26 weeks of unemployment without certainty about what they're going to do to pay for their health care or take care of their kids' education or, you know, pay their mortgage or whatever. I don't think that should happen. And because I was kind to him, he was kind in response, and we ended up having a dialogue. And I said, look, man, all I got for you is an analysis. That's all I can offer if you're interested. And I didn't really expect him to say that he was because I figured, like, you know, this dude's unemployed and pissed. He's like, an analysis? What the hell? Like, if I I were him, I'd be like, screw you with your analysis. But, you know, but he was like, whatever. I got nothing else to do today. So give me your analysis. I'm like, all right. Here it comes, you know. So I said, here's the thing, man. When you wrote to me, it was interesting. Your email said, and this is what he said. He said, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. Very specific, right? He said, I did everything right. I played by the rules. I worked hard. I, 
you know, worked over the weekends. I didn't take vacations. I came in early. I left late. You know, all this blah, blah, blah stuff about how hard he had worked. And I said, Jeremy, when you say that, even though I don't think you meant it this way, it sort of comes across as this mentality of expectation and entitlement. What you're saying is I deserve better. All these other poor schlubs on the unemployment line, they didn't work as hard as me. So even though you may not mean it to sound that way, it comes across like you're separating yourself from other people. And I just find that fascinating because it says to me that you didn't understand what some of those other folks knew for the last 20 or 30 years since they were 11 or 12 years old, right? Which is that it happens. You just didn't think shit could happen to you. You didn't think that you could be facing this level of unemployment. Black and brown folks always knew that they could be facing this level of unemployment because it isn't new for them at all. It's been a constant. What does it mean that you were able to envelop yourself in a bubble of obliviousness all of this time? What it means is that your privilege, even though you don't see it right now, has come back to bite you on the And so now we better ask as a country what we're going to do about a system of privilege and inequality that is coming back to bite all of us on the It is biting us right now. It is time that we bite back. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate your time and attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So I'm going to do a few questions and uh, half an hour roughly of those. And then I'll, I have some books we can uh, sell you. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm like a salesman. I'm like, yeah, if you'd like a book, yeah, I got some books. Or not, you know, whatever. Um, but we'll just do the Q&A for now. Um, try not to be nervous about this question. Okay, so um, thank you for your talk. Yeah. I hail from Appalachia, Pennsylvania, where fracking is hell and where yeah. domestic violence is insane. So, yeah. um, but this question is actually coming from a couple of great uh, black writers that I would like to acknowledge. Sure. Elsewhere, you have criticized what you see as the reductionist tendencies within class-centered analysis for political organization. For example, Marxism. This is some of your earlier writings that I'm talking about. In some of these arguments, you suggest that socialism trends white. But in her recent book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, published in 2016 by Haymarket Books, Kianga Yamada-Taylor asks you directly, how did socialism go from being the biggest threat to federal government, as is called the revolutionary socialist Black Panthers, to being perceived as white and marginal to the struggles of people of color? And I would like um, for you to respond to this Taylor's question, understanding that the life work of Cedric J. Robinson, our late great professor of black studies and political science here at UCSB, his life work from black Marxism to forgeries of memory and meeting, insisted that people of color have also been engaging Marxism intellectually as well as organizationally for quite some time, and white people have to catch up. Oh, indeed. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate the question. And Taylor's book is genius, and and she's a genius, and and I I really appreciated her particular work and that book. Um, Indeed, I mean, I mentioned Du Bois earlier. He was a black Marxist, and there is a long tradition 
of black and brown Marxism, not only in our country, but around the planet. In fact, I would say that most of the really deep and important socialist thinkers um, disproportionately actually have been people of color. So let's be clear about that. My critique of modern Western Marxism, that is to say the kind that manifests in our country at the moment, because that's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Marxism in a theoretical sense when I issue that criticism. Um, I'm talking about the way that I have heard Marxism engaged by a disproportionately white class-centered audience and analysis is highly problematic because, first of all, I don't believe that those individuals, at least in my experience, typically bring in the wisdom of folks like the ones you mentioned or others that I could mention and that we know about who indeed are Marxist scholars and socialist scholars of color. And I think that their arguments are reductionist. Those folks that you mentioned and those that I mentioned, Du Bois and others, they were not reductionist. They understood the inherent, you know, interconnection between capitalism and white supremacy. But when you read the work of white Marxists who sadly, because of white supremacy, define the sort of modern Marxist uh, canon within the United States, you don't hear that piece. What I hear is people saying, you know, the real issue is class. Not race. Race is just a national oppression issue, but the real issue is class. That's not legitimate Marxist analysis, and it's certainly not what Du Bois would have said. It's not what Taylor believes. It's not what, as far as I can gather, any socialist of color believes, but it's what I hear. And my argument about it, look, my economics is basically Marxist, but the difference that I have with people who make those arguments is that their assumption, as far as I can tell, in the conversations I've had with them is, you know, if we really want to get rid of racism, we just have to get rid of capitalism. We just need to focus on getting rid of capitalism, and then, and then racism will go away. As if somehow the only seedbed of white supremacy is the class system. But in fact, there are other seedbeds of white supremacy. And I don't have time to go through what all of them are, but I mean, some of them are on the church walls that people attend every Sunday, right? There are other things other than just class and competitive economics that create the incentives for things like white supremacy. And not to mention, I would argue, if we're thinking about Marxist analysis, right, this idea that the working class has false consciousness and will ultimately come to consciousness as a result of whatever it is, consciousness raising, of organizing, of understanding the inherent contradictions of the class struggle. Okay, fine. Let's assume all of that is true. And I'm not denying that it might be. I would argue slightly different than a traditional Marxist, particularly a traditional white Marxist, which is the arguments that I hear mostly in this country, right? This idea that somehow if we just talk about class, we will be able to build working class coalitions. My analysis and my understanding of this country is that in fact, the thing that prevents us from building working class coalition is indeed things like white supremacy. So if we don't engage white supremacy at the outset, if we do not centrally focus on that, there ain't gonna be no class consciousness. I remember you know, starting off, in, when I started doing this work, and, and the first thing I did out of college was do this work against David Duke in Louisiana when he was running for the US Senate and governor of Louisiana in 91. And Duke, for those who don't know, were like lifelong white supremacist, former head of the largest Klan group in the United States. And I remember Marxist friends of mine, I mean like really committed like SWP Trotskyite friends of mine who were like, we just need to go into the union halls and tell these people, and these were all white folks, right? We just need to go in and tell them that, you know, the, the rich are manipulating them and that they should join with their black brothers and sisters and then they won't vote for Duke. I'm like, yeah, good luck with that because 
I don't think that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, it'll work. Well, it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work was because those individuals were so bought into the psychological wage of whiteness, right, that the idea that you could just go talk class interest with them wasn't going to matter for the same reason that people vote against their class interest and vote for a guy who says, I'm going to kill you by getting rid of your health care. I have a gun. I have it pointed at your head. And I'm going to pull the trigger. And you will vote for me anyway. So then the question is, if we're going to build working class consciousness, which I deeply believe in, Right. And which every socialist of color has always believed in. We have to, I think, realize that white supremacy in Marxist terms is the transmission belt of false consciousness. That is the thing that actually creates false consciousness in white working class people. So it's not that I disagree with Marxist theory about certain aspects of social change. I'm just trying to invert the cause and effect a little bit and to say that rather than viewing getting rid of the class system as the key to getting rid of white supremacy, I would argue centrally challenging white supremacy is going to be key to getting rid of the class system. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean rejecting Marxist theory. It just means tweaking it from its general sort of focus on dealing with class at the, to, you know, to the exclusion of race. And, and, and so I have absolute respect for Marxist scholars of color, primarily because I think they get this. But Marxist scholars who are white, I often find do not. And I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to that, but I'm saying that generally speaking, there's a tendency to try to say, let's not talk about race. Oh, and let's not talk about gender. Oh, and let's not talk about sexuality. And let's not talk about all, let's just talk about class and that will be sufficient. And I just find that to be both ahistorical in the extreme and almost entirely irrational and indefensible um, from either a philosophical perspective or a practical one. But, but I, I, you know, so I'm not at all opposed to um, the analysis of Marxist scholars of color. I just have a problem with the, with the white version of it. Um, so let's be clear about that. But thank you for the question. Thank you very much. Next question, please. Hello. Um, my name is Evan Quash. I'm a first year here. And first, I want to say thank you for coming out. I've been a huge fan of yours for years, your authorship and your work you. as a whole. Um, my question is, uh, since you yourself have had the luxury of attending an integrated school with a high black or person of color representation at a young age, yep. and you were able to, to develop a sense of um, radical empathy and understanding, but unfortunately, due to de facto housing discrimination and redlining throughout this country. That is yeah. not a reality for many white Americans in yeah. this country. Right. Um, so therefore, how do anti-racism racism activists such as myself work to create a sense of radical empathy and understanding within white Americans? I think it's a good question because for those who don't know the backstory, it is it, it was easier in a way uh, for me. I, you know, I had a lot of things going for me other than just the white male part, which was, you know, big enough. But I mean, just even the Right. I mean, like, that's the obvious part. But with regard to your question, I did have this sort of really different white experience. I went to preschool at a historically black college. And so from the earliest years, my peer group was, you know, mostly black folks. And the teachers that I was around, the administrators were the authority figures were mostly, you know, women of color. And so definitely growing up in that context and then going to integrated schools in Nashville, right after DSEG had started, at which point they were, you know, 38, 40% uh, kids of color, <clears throat> um, certainly made a difference. And you're right, most people don't have that. I think what, what we can do in the absence of that, which, and let's be honest, that alone isn't enough. I mean, that helped, but 
I went to school with a lot of other white folks and they ain't doing this, you know? So it's not like, it's not like every white person that grew up in those schools, like, you know, Dr. Pello, who is a friend of mine, who's uh, here at this institution, we went to schools together. He'll tell you, you know, like, you know, they're not a lot of white folks, even though they went to those schools and know him and, you know, they're not doing this work. So that's not an automatic anything, right? Um, But it certainly helps. For those who don't have that, there are other things that we can do. And I think some of those things we can do more now than we ever could because of the growth of alternative media and the growth of the web and social media and different ways of communicating. There's now access to so much more information. You know, back then you would really, even 20 years ago, 15, even 12 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you would really have to put in some pretty significant labor to come up with information that could even sort of apprise you of a different narrative. Um, if, so if you didn't have the growing up experience, you were going to have to really dig. You were going to, you know, 20 years ago when I'm been doing this work for 26 years, you were going to have to go and find books and go to the library and, you know, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing any of that. We should do all of that. We shouldn't rely only on the internet for our information, God forbid. But the reality is that now you do have some access to the narratives of other people. You have access to the truth as understood by people whose truth has been ignored for so long. Um, And so whereas I was a little kid learning to respect black authority at three at Tennessee State University in a preschool program, I mean, you know, but we can still learn that even if it's at 18, even if it's at 28, even if it's at 38, by immersing ourselves in in the narratives of other people and in starting with what seems like maybe a radical assumption, but it's really a very basic one. Because really, if you think about it, what was it that I was taught as a kid? I was taught, in effect without being taught didactically. It's not like anybody sat me down and said it, but when you're three and your teachers are black women and most of your peers are black kids, what you're being taught indirectly is to assume that other people know their reality better than you do, right? I mean, that's sort of the implicit lesson is they are the authorities on their lives and they are just as good an authority about things as anyone else and you should respect their authority. So the problem is most people haven't had that experience and then we start questioning black authority and brown authority and we question other people's sense of reality. So all I would ask us to do, even if you've never had the benefit of that experience that I had as a kid, which maybe primed me to have a slightly different take, is to just ask yourself the fundamental question. Who is most likely to know their own Right? Like, that's some basic stuff. Like, who is most likely to know what their life is like? Is it more likely that a person of color knows what they actually experience, or is it more likely that a white person knows what they experience? Is it more likely, when we're thinking about something like misogyny and rape culture, is it really dudes who know more about that? Or is it women who know more about that? Like, if we're talking about ableism, is it really like able-bodied people who have to think about that at all, who actually know more about it? Or is it people who have disabilities? It just strikes me as sort of obvious when you ask the question, right, that people tend to know more about their own life than you know about their life. That's what I was learning at three. And even if you didn't learn it at three, all you got to do is ask the question. Sadly, we don't do that. And so it ends up being like the matrix, right? And so it's like, you know, you got, you got people that are, by virtue of being members of the dominant group, are on the blue pill all the damn time. 
like been on the blue pill with the IV drip since they came out their mama's womb and don't even know they're on it, right? And, they're, and, and people of color who are on the red pill because they gotta be are walking around like, you see the racism? And we're like, racism? What racism? I'm on the blue pill. You know, I don't have to know anything. And then women are like, don't you see the misogyny? And guys are like, no, blue pill. And I know blue pill and guys mean some different. I realize that in the modern pharmaceutical era, but that's not the blue pill I'm talking about. I'm talking about not Pfizer. I'm talking about the matrix, um, right? Uh, for those of us who are straight and cisgendered, it's like, well, I'm on the blue pill and LGBTQ folks are like, don't you see the straight supremacy? Don't you see the transphobia? And we don't. And even good people, right, can miss that stuff because if you're not required to know certain things, you won't know them. So all I ask people to do is just start with that. It's really not radical, but it comes across that way to some people. Start with the assumption that when, when it's not your life that we're talking about, that other people probably are the best arbiters of what's happening to them. Doesn't mean they'll always get it right. Because look, we can misperceive things. People can misperceive a comment, misperceive a look, misperceive their treatment and, and, and get it wrong. But the problem is white America has a history of just assuming that people of color are completely irrational when they bring up these issues. And I think that, you know, and that's what we know is true because you can look at the Gallup polls from 63 and two thirds of white Americans in 63 told Gallup that black folks were treated equally in America in housing, education, and employment. That's before the Civil Rights Act was even passed. What does that tell us, right? It tells us that even at a time when it was blatant, white folks were so blue-pilled that they didn't see what was going on, even though they were mostly good people, right? These are mostly decent people, but they're just like, yeah, I don't see it. And no one ever just simply stopped to ask them, like, do you really believe that you know someone else's life better than they do? Now, some people probably would have said, yes, I absolutely believe that. But here we are at 2017, and I think just, you know, if you just think about it for a minute, right, it's, it strikes me as obvious. And, and, and here's the thing, like everyone in this room, probably has an identity where you're not the dominant group, right? So think about it just on that level, right? There's very few people that are just dominant group members, right? Very few people that have like eight categories of privilege. Most of us are a mix, right? So you might be white and you might be male and you might be straight, you might be cisgendered, but you could, you know, have some, you could be um, disabled or you could be a religious minority or whatever. You know, you might have seven dominant groups, but you might have a non-dominant group. And so think about the one where you're not the dominant group and think about what it feels like when someone tells you that you don't know what the hell you're talking about, about the category that you're not the dominant group. It feels like, right? So then actually maybe relate that to the experience that other people are having. And I think that might be one way, you know, to break through some of this stuff. Not a guaranteed way, but at least a beginning way to open that conversation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.